November is over, but our coverage of missing and murdered Indigenous people is not. And I'd like to paint a picture here for you as we start this episode of a seven or eight-year-old little girl going off to school in the morning. And as a parent, we may feel that our children are safest when we can have our eyes on them at all times. But we also have faith and trust in our schools to keep our children safe when we're not there with them throughout the day. Maybe on your child's first day, there's a pang of worry or fear around leaving them to someone else's care. That if something were to happen in school, would they be protected as fiercely as we would protect them? And maybe this is only me being overprotective and worrisome, especially as a true crime podcaster sending their first kid off to school to be a kindergartner. But I imagine we've all felt this, especially in today's age, where since Columbine, there's been a worry in the back of our minds that we could see the next Columbine at our kid's school, the next Sandy Hook, the next school shooting or bombing or mass casualty situation. What we don't think about, though, is what really wouldn't even cross our minds We could send our child to school in the morning and they would just not come home later that day. And that's exactly what happened with Monica still smoking. I'm your host, Catherine Galvin, true crime lover, seeker of justice, and intuitive medium. And this is Murder and Mediumship. Before we dive fully into this case, I'd like to take a moment to thank my listeners and those who pledge my Patreon in support of the show. I have added a PayPal link to the show notes for anyone who would like to donate in support of production without making a monthly pledge. Thank you as well for the reviews, as all of these positive reviews you guys have been sending in allow the podcast to reach the ears of so, so many, and that allows these voices to be amplified. Please send any show requests to Katherine Galvin at katherineanintuitive.com. This podcast, as always, is for entertainment purposes only. No accusations are being made, and everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Monica Still Smoking was a student at Nepi Elementary School in December of 1979. I came across her name while researching Ashley Heavy Runner's disappearance and wanted to see what I could about this poor, sweet little girl who was taken from this earth well before her time. And if you missed the Ashley Heavy Runner case, Go on and head back a couple more episodes and listen to a case that really started to spark more and more amplification of the voices of the missing and murdered indigenous people who's kind of, this has brought this movement forward for us to, for mainstream media to be paying more attention to what's going on with indigenous people. Monica left for school on December 17th, 1979, much like any other day. However, she didn't come home from school, and when a child that young, only seven or eight years old, doesn't return home, you know in your gut immediately something has got to be wrong. It's not like they could have just run away with some boy or stayed late for sports or walked home with a different friend than usual. There's immediate concern, and when she didn't come home from school, Melba still smoking, Monica's mother panicked. Her parents were divorced, and she was living with her mom. And as with many of these cases of missing and murdered indigenous people, There's very little public information available about her case, which speaks to how little media attention was given to it at the time, and even since. And we intend to change that, though. Monica and her family were also a part of Blackfeet Nation in Montana, and she was even from Browning, just like Ashley was. The first thing that you're drawn to with Monica is her beautiful eyes. She has one brown eye and one blue eye, and then she has beautiful, long, dark, curly hair. Days before Christmas, Monica's family was organizing search parties, stepping in where they couldn't get law enforcement to and canvassing the vast area outside of the school and the surrounding wilderness near Glacier National Park. 
From what I understand, and not shockingly so, tribal police were stretched thin and lacked training. And think about how now, in 2021, we're seeing them still stretched thin. And even a few years ago, in searching for Ashley Heavy Runner, we heard that there were only 17 uniformed police officers to maintain the 1.5 million acres of land of Blackfeet Nation. Adding to this report, Adding to this, reports made by Indigenous people are not often taken seriously, and critical time can be lost that could have been used to find Monica and maybe even found her alive. Monica's aunt, Carol Douglas, spoke to one news source about how Monica's mother, Melba, was ecstatic for Christmas to come because she had bought a new bike for Monica, something they didn't typically have the money to do. And to imagine getting something like that for your child and knowing my oldest is right around that age, how excited they're going to be. And then instead your face was staring at that gift day in and day out, wondering where your child is. I can only imagine how incredibly difficult this situation had to be and has to continue to be being that the killer was never caught. So Her father even talks about searching high and low in the hills all over the reservation for a week. In December, Montana is pretty stinking bitterly cold. And in the month of December, the average high is 32 degrees Fahrenheit, whereas the low is a bitter 15 degrees. Neither a good scenario for a little girl who is missing, let alone for a family to be searching in, especially without professional help. It was Monica's uncle who found her small body frozen in the snow, 14 miles from Browning, near Glacier National Park. She was discovered roughly one week after she had gone missing, and her brother still recalls seeing her coat blowing in the wind as she was carried. Monica's mother, Melba, visits her grave every birthday, hoping that she will catch the perpetrator visiting one day as well, and that day has not yet come. This is where I'd like to jump in with a little bit of intuitive insight. I do believe, and again, none of this can be proven, but I do believe that Monica was taken by a custodian of the school. When I first connected, I saw what looked like painter's clothes, but could easily have been a janitorial uniform. And I feel as if this man had spent some time grooming her and being sweet to her, making her feel special. And that's how we got her to go outside with him to see something beautiful that day. I do believe the community knows who it is, but that law enforcement sat on this information or didn't care enough to look further into it for, quote, lack of evidence. The evidence would have been there, but they simply never collected it. And further, her father, Kenny, had spoken to a medicine man who told him that her abductor was a white male who wore Western-style clothing and lived in a red house nearby town. They had no way of proving any of this, so it couldn't be looked into any further, but I imagine he wasn't the only one who could have offered more insight, let alone more tangible insight of his vision. I do believe that this person was fixated on her because of her beauty, and that he chose not to control his perversion. While he is likely mentally ill, I do believe he fully knew what he was doing and did nothing to stop it. Like I said, though, this is my intuitive vision. This isn't hard fact. Much like the medicine man, you can take or leave what I believe I see. I also believe that he had perverse interactions with other students as well, but that with her, he took it much much farther than he did with others by killing her. I do also believe that the man who did this for her has since to her has since passed away. Now, Monica's cousins, Ivan and Ivy McDonald, have begun a documentary called When They Were Here which of course I will link in the show notes, as well as a link as a link to a clip of the documentary on the Patreon. 
But anyway, these two are cousins of Monica still smoking. The crisis that exists in Blackfeet Nation with missing and murdered Indigenous persons is ongoing, as this case that I'm referencing today is from 1979, and still, 40 years later, in 2021, we're still seeing this, and we're seeing it more, which could be because of social media and we're hearing about it more, but the amount of people going missing over the last two decades, it's just two to three decades, it's just unheard of. When They Were Here is a collection of stories from around the state of Montana, told by people in communities that have been deeply affected by the missing and murdered Indigenous people crisis. Though the documentary has not yet been released, Ivan discusses in various articles a pattern that emerges in these communities. A woman or child goes missing, there's community outcry, a search is launched, a reward is possibly offered, frustration begins with tribal police and federals, and federal agents, and inevitably, those involved feel that the cases are mishandled, lack urgency, and lack follow-through. And then the cycle begins again with the next missing or murdered person. Not to mention, cases have gone altogether unreported for decades because of the lack of urgency from law enforcement, lack of follow-through, and lack of trust in law enforcement. Those that are reported are often not documented thoroughly due to lack of tracking through federal databases, which we know has recently shifted thanks to doctoral student Anita Luchesi, the Cheyenne woman who has begun to build a database of missing and murdered in U.S. and Canada. And just to show you how inaccurate these numbers can be, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police recently compiled data that showed about 1,180 unsolved missing and murdered cases of the Indigenous people. And Lucchesi was able to add another four to 500 to that list in Canada alone. I mean, recall too that Blackfeet Nation is the combination of four tribes that span between the U.S. and Canada with little trained law enforcement to monitor 1.5 million acres of land. I mean, four to 500 when the total count the police were estimating to be at about 1,100. This is nearly half. And then adding on to that, that's 50% more than they were initially talking about. Stick around to the end of the episode because this is a bit of a two-parter. But before we move on, I'd like to take a second to highlight an Indigenous-owned business that was recently brought to my attention. The Kanata Trade Company is co-owned by twin sisters Amira and Nadia. They're graduate students at Queen's University in Canada. Their company sells face masks, journals, shirts, and other accessories with Indigenous art designs on them. Kanata Trading Company donates all of its profits to Inspire, an Indigenous national charity that invests in the education of First Nations, Inuit, and Matisse people for the long-term benefit of these individuals, their families, in Canada. So far, the company has been able to donate $6,000 to Inspire, which has in turn also been able to give scholarships totaling over $17.8 million to the aforementioned tribes. In the year of 2020, shopping from their store will continue to help the Jill sisters help others to fund their educations in the way that Inspire allowed them to. You can find them at www.kananatradeco.com, buy a face mask, journal, t-shirt, pin, throw blanket, among other products, and help fund Indigenous education. The link, of course, will be in the show notes. As in the previous few episodes, jurisdiction always comes up. We won't go into it as much as we have before, because if you've been around for a couple of episodes, you have heard it. It's a mess. Jurisdiction varies based on type of crime. Was it committed on the reservation or off the reservation? Was it committed by an Indigenous person or against an Indigenous person? If there is ample evidence to prove the crime was a homicide or sexual assault, then the FBI might step in. 
but there has to be ample evidence to warrant this. And if tribal police is underfunded and the Bureau of Indian Affairs doesn't get involved or the local law enforcement skimps on the investigation, then evidence can be lacking even if there was evidence to collect to begin with. Former North Dakota federal prosecutor Tim Purden was quoted as calling this mess a, quote, jurisdictional thicket of overlap of authorities and different laws depending on which crime, if it happened on tribal land or not, and if a tribal member was either the victim or perpetrator. And with all of this being so confusing, it's even more difficult to get help or to know even where to start looking for help, which is frustrating to say the least when time is so important in these types of cases. Also, it's not like help is just a phone call away or blocks away. In areas like this, and obviously not in 1979, but later than that, with the with cell phones, there's still not enough service half the time that you're up there. You're in the middle of nowhere. There's no cell phone service. You may have to catch a ride into town to make a report like that. It's not as simple as it may be for someone like you, if you're listening, living in a city or even a town where you can simply call 911 and be connected immediately and file a report, it's not that simple. So indigenous women have been portrayed by the media as invisible and disposable. And if you're thinking, well, I've never really even seen them in the media, then yep, you're getting it. The lack of airtime given to them by the U.S. media is exactly what says you're unimportant and do not matter. The documentary, When They Were Here, interviews Carrie Lance, a man who helped organize a search party for missing mom, Bonnie Three Irons, and he shared with the crew that, quote, they, law enforcement, don't put in the effort to investigations here in Indian country like they do off reservations. Somebody needs to hold these people accountable, end quote. Filmmaker Ivan McDonald is quoted as saying, I can't think of a single person that I know who doesn't have some sort of experience. These women aren't just statistics. They're grandma. These are mom. This is an aunt. This is a daughter. This is someone who was loved and didn't get the justice that they so desperately needed. It's not enough to just acknowledge that this is happening, but there has to be an outcry for more attention. There has to be amplification, donating of resources, recognition of the systemic racism holding these communities back. We talked a few weeks ago about how drug dealers have come onto the reservations and established a trade here. They prey on the vulnerable, and when a community is largely ignored by law enforcement, the drugs can infiltrate these areas. In my research, I stumbled on a description of Browning, Montana, and numerous buildings with wooden boards over windows and doors and spray-painted meth unit. This isn't occurring because people just don't want better for themselves. This is what hundreds of years of oppression and racism have created, and we need to ask how to shift this narrative and then actively participate in doing so. Women who are addicted to drugs are also infinitely easier to traffic, and how many women in this area have gone missing and not been found? Where do you think they're all going? It's time to look at the disaster that we've created and start doing what we can to fix this. I came across a post on Instagram by Lawrence Welch, and I'll, of course, add her social media info in the notes as well, where she says, so you've acknowledged that you are on blank land. What do you do next? Because you know that's not all you have to do, right? I mean, I'm all for a good land acknowledgement, especially when it's done by the actual original and still very present peoples who occupy that land. But to be frank, that's not enough. So you obviously know what tribes and nations land you're on. You're an uninvited guest on thanks to that land acknowledgement. But what have you brought as an offering besides buildings, pollution, and tax? Are you working to directly help the peoples whose land was stolen? 
Are there local organizations or grassroots efforts to help their communities? Have you volunteered? Have you donated? Have you amplified? The point? A land acknowledgement means absolutely nothing if action doesn't follow your words. So what are you going to do? And again, I'll link that so you can read it over for yourselves because it is such a really valuable thought to kind of run through over and over. We're listening, but what can we do to help? This statement is huge. The action has to be there. Moving into January 2022, I'm looking to donate all proceeds made by Patreon, minus the cost of producing the show, which really isn't much at all. I have already begun my search for the right organization in support of the missing murdered Indigenous, missing and murdered Indigenous women efforts. But if anyone has any insight to specific groups, please send me an email from my website, which is always in the show notes. I'm going to pause one more time to briefly remind you that gift cards are now on sale at katherineannintuitive.com. And while December is pretty much booked up for private readings, there are plenty of available spots in January. Moving into January, the Patreon will be taking a bit of a turn as the funds will begin to cover the cost of production on the podcast. But outside of that, all profits will be going to an Indigenous charity. I have not selected the charity yet, but y'all will be the first to know when I do. Again, like I said, if you have any suggestions, I am open to them. So support the show, support this movement toward justice for Indigenous persons in North America. And thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening. Since the coverage of Monica was so brief, I wanted to bring your attention to yet another person of the Indigenous community of Blackfeet Nation. This time we're going to fast forward a good 40 years. Arden Pepion was three years old when she was last seen on April 22nd of this year, 2021. She was wearing a purple jacket with a unicorn on the front, a gray sweater, black leggings, and black boots with green trim. Her mother, Arbana, described her as having a big voice and a huge personality. Her uncle, I am apologizing in advance if I am mispronouncing his name, but I believe it is Hawks Bell, was practicing shooting with his girlfriend, Kimberly Higgins, while watching Arden, known to her, her family as Artie. Based on news reports, they were, they were near U.S. Highway 89, several miles southeast of Browning, Montana, where so many of these cases featured on murder and mediumship so far have taken place. Unfortunately, Arden wandered off unbeknownst to her uncle, who would eventually notice her tiny footprints in the dirt, leading to the river just 50 yards away. At the time, Arden was under the legal care of her grandmother, and her uncle seems to have been watching her, at least at that specific time. However, on October 27, 2021, just before his court date, he pleaded guilty to negligent endangerment of a child and was sentenced to nine months in jail, which was suspended in lieu of house arrest and fined $1,000, of which $500 was suspended. The charges against his girlfriend Kimberly were dropped, and her original charge was accountability for falling to no- for failing to notify authorities in a reasonable amount of time after becoming aware that Arden was missing under dangerous circumstances. The circumstances being that there was a massive river nearby and no one had their eyes on the three-year-old child. The plea deal, however, was that Veal would take, excuse me, Veal took any responsibility that Kimberly may have. He was taking full responsibility for the disappearance of Arden and Higgins was released of any responsibility. Hours passed between noticing that Arden was gone and actually notifying law enforcement of her disappearance. Foul play was not suspected, and therefore an Amber Alert was not released. 
Police did notify the public to be on the lookout for Arden, but because of the delay in reporting her disappearance to law enforcement, the search for her was also delayed. The search for Arden lasted 10 days and focused primarily in Two Medicine River as well as the surrounding area. Law enforcement covered 20 miles of land around the river as well as 40 miles of the river, even diverting some of the water so as to make it easier to search for Arden in more shallow water. They were able to employ the use of drones, helicopters, and divers during this extensive search. You may wonder why I'm telling the story of Arden Pepion if no foul play was suspected. After 10 days, law enforcement had to scale back the efforts of the official search. Unfortunately, just days after Artie's disappearance, 26-year-old Leo Wagner of Blackfeet Nation also disappeared. While this is completely unrelated to the disappearance of Artie, it did strain the efforts of already overstretched law enforcement. Family continues to look for Artie, but after those initial 10 days, it was announced by law enforcement that they were looking to recover her body and were no longer on a rescue mission. The disappearance of Artie and Leo highlight a very well-understood problem on reservations, lack of law enforcement services. Blackfeet Business Councilman Mark Pollock has directed Blackfeet Law Enforcement to provide timelines from when Artie first went missing as well as when Leo went missing. I know we've talked about the lack of trained officers in this area and the vast amount of land that they're supposed to be able to monitor and serve, but according to Pollock, they're running it just over half-staffed. For what their responsibilities are, tribal law enforcement should have a minimum of 41 bodies patrolling the area and available 24-7 to its citizens. However, with just over half of that, it's just not possible. He would like to see law enforcement get the bodies that they need to be able to do their jobs sufficiently, as well as law enforcement who is trained take reports of missing and murdered persons seriously. Pollock is trying to get two investigative specialists to the law enforcement team in addition to enough boots on the ground to do their job. These specialists would focus on sorting out fact from fiction, according to Pollock, and they would help to solve recent cold cases, which we know there are plenty of. He also believes that choosing people from Blackfeet Nation would help with the public trust and knowing that the FBI, with the FBI agents working these cases, would be held accountable by these specialists. Arbana Pepion says that she always knew her daughter had a big voice, but she didn't think it was going to be this big. Changes are coming, but they cannot be in small incremental steps. They have to be huge and they have to be sweeping and all encompassing. The change needs to happen now. Amplify the voices. Donate where you can. Actively speak up when confronted with ideas of systemic racism and educate those in your circle as the opportunity presents itself. Silence perpetuates this problem. It's not okay to just settle it out at we have a difference of opinion because human rights are not a matter of opinion. We have to act now. Peace and love, my friends. Thank you for listening to Murder and Mediumship. And remember, if you'd like to book a private reading, head to katherineanintuitive.com and be on the lookout in January for an intuitive exploration class at an extremely affordable rate.